if somebody came into the shop and they they bought something that we would never have at home, I'd be really curious. I'd be really inquisitive. You know, how what do you do with this? How do you how do you cook this? And then then the flip side of that was a couple of weeks later, somebody would come in and say, what do you, what do you do with that? And I'd say, oh well, I don't. I've never cooked this at home, but. I always ask customers what they do with that. And one lady said that she does it with this and one guy said that he does it with that. So, you know, these are a few little variations for what you can do. And it's just, it's a, it's a complete melting pot of ideas and, and it's a great place to have a dialogue with people about food. And as we know, we love talking about food, so it's a great place to hang out. Welcome to My Signature Dish, episode six. This is the podcast where I speak to talented home cooks about their interest in cooking, the tips and tricks they've learned in the kitchen, and of course, what their signature dish is. Just like Chris Bavin's episode last week, this episode two was recorded live from the BBC Good Food Show at the Birmingham NEC. And so there is a bit of background noise we have to contend with. Uh, we were actually in the lobby of a hotel, which had a little cafe. So every time someone ordered a latte or anything which involved foamed milk, uh, you'll hear a bit of noise. Um, but I assure you, it's well worth sticking through. The content is absolutely brilliant. Uh, this week's guest is Richard Holden, and I managed to catch his masterclass presentation at the BBC Good Food Show, where he showed how to cook a perfect steak on the barbecue while giving all sorts of tips like uh, rubbing your oil uh, onto the grill uh, not with a towel but with half an onion to impart flavor Uh, things like putting a bulb of garlic in the charcoal to create garlicky smoke uh, resting your meat under a tea towel etc etc i thought well this guy must know everything there is to know about barbecue i have to get him on the podcast and uh, that's true this guy does Uh, he's published uh, an ebook for goodness sake Um, he spends uh, his days teaching barbecue doing barbecue Uh, he's a massive fanatic and i couldn't be more pleased that we got him on the podcast. I promise you, you won't think about barbecuing in the same way again. A lot of people think that, um, especially in the UK, that barbecues are for hot sunny days in the middle of summer. And it's for everybody sitting outside and kids running around, paddling pools, the rest of it. And actually, barbecue is best, in my mind, when it's a damp day. So put some food on the barbecue, let it roast, change your cooking style from grilling to roasting or low and slow. And the benefit of cooking outside is that your barbecue, your smoker, whatever it is you're cooking on, draws in that damp air and it keeps the food nice and succulent and juicy and moist. Um, Different to an indoor oven, which ovens were originally invented to make bricks. So they they were invented to dry things out. Um, So if you put that food on the barbecue to smoke or roast or bake, it will be a better finished result. So what is what you're saying, that the same barbecue that you have in your, in your garden can be used for two very different methods of cooking, grilling Absolutely. and roasting? Absolutely. And both are, both are equally legitimate barbecue methods, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They both count as barbecue. Yeah. So in the States, so when I go back to my earlier comment, um, when, I, when you asked me what barbecue is, in the States, barbecue is low and slow. And when you talk to somebody from the States about the kind of cooking we do in the UK, they would call that grilling. Right. And f- f- for someone that's trying to imagine their barbecue now, what does the setup look like if they're either grilling or if they're roasting? So the classic perception of barbecue in the UK is that you put your fuel all the way across, whether it's charcoal or gas, you, you have fuel all the way across the grill. And you don't need that because you actually want an area of your barbecue that is unlit has no fuel in it, so that if you have a piece of food that is cooked on the outside but not cooked on the inside, you can move it across to that area 
and with a proximity to the heat, but not being directly over the heat, right. it will cook through with that radiant heat, with that circulating heat, with the, with the warm air, rather than the actual heat coming from directly underneath in the form of coals or, or, or gas burners in a gas barbecue. And I suppose the better you get, the better you get at regulating kind of that balance between the direct and indirect heat. Because I imagine it's, you know, it's not just one or the other, is it? It's probably a combination of, of both no, things it's going not. on. So if you, if you imagine a round, a classic round charcoal barbecue, if you imagine a bird's eye view looking straight down on it and you have, say, the, um, a, a draw a line straight down the middle of it and you put fuel on the left half and you have nothing in the right half, if you put your food anywhere on that left half, it will grill. It will cook like it's cooking in a frying pan. It will sear on the outside. It will color on the outside. It will caramelize on the outside very, very quickly, depending on how hot you've got your grill. But you wouldn't cook anything there that takes more than 20 minutes to cook, let's say. You wouldn't cook it all the way through there. So the kind of food that you cook there is the same kind of food that you cook in a frying pan. And one of the other intricacies is that depending on how close you have your fuel to the cooking grate in that half, you can cook quicker or slower. You can grill quicker or slower. So and that's the Argentinian method, isn't it? Kind of raise it, raising or lowering the, the Yeah, the so, so you can have, if you've got your, your left half of that semicircle, if you've got your left semicircle and the fuel is slightly closer to the grate on the left side, and slightly lower on the on the towards the middle towards that separating line then the food will grill quicker on the left side than it will in the middle and also when you cross that when you cross that dividing line in the middle that puts you into an oven situation so it puts you into a roasting a baking situation so anything you put across in that right semicircle anything that you put there will roast through now again if you put your food close to that dividing line it will roast quicker than if you put it all the way to the right hand side of that circle so you can really, you know, it, it's as simple as the nearer you have your food to the heat source, the quicker it's going to cook. And the further you have it away from it, the slower it's going to cook. And what are the other things that might regulate that heat that you need to think about? Um, <clears throat> on a classic charcoal or a classic grill, uh, sorry, classic gas barbecue, the, thing, the main thing that regulates the heat is the amount of fuel that you put in. The more fuel you put in, the hotter it's going to get. The, the quicker you're going to cook. It's just like driving a car. The more fuel you put into the engine, the quicker you're going to go. The, there are other types of uh, outdoor cooking equipment, so, such as your ceramics and your smokers, and they work on airflow. So my analogy for those is they are like a log burner. Um, you, you put the fuel in, you stack, stoke them up with fuel, and you, you put the lids down, you, uh, and you control the heat by using the airflow. So your classic gas or your classic charcoal barbecue are like an open fire, where you, you, you do control the airflow somewhat in the sense of you put the lid down, but you have the vents fully open uh, to allow the to allow the heat to fully to allow the coals to fully work, um, but you you control the heat on those in the same way that you control an open fire. So the more fuel you put on, the more heat you're going to get. With a with a ceramic or a or a smoker, it's about the airflow. And if we can get even more technical, what are that things like taking the lid off and on? How much could that affect? You know, say for example, I get my barbecue to temperature, then I take the lid off to check it and then put the lid back on. Is that going to like affect my cooking time by like half an hour or something? A little, yeah. Yeah, it will. Um, and I've got to remember here, you mentioned the Argentinian style. Obviously, there are barbecue techniques where oh, yeah, there that, is no open, lid. Isn't it? Yeah, there yeah. is no lid whatsoever. Um, those are a bit more challenging. You have to be, uh, even, even the people that, you know, do this on TV, they will say that this is a lot more challenging. You have to take into consideration wind directions and, and all sorts of different factors. And it's, it's a lot more involved. I've done some myself for weddings. Um, and it's, it's not as 
easy. It's mm. definitely not as easy, but it is obviously a technique. And presumably, but there's a the risk that the food gets cold as well, right? There absolutely is. Yeah. We did. I helped a friend of mine with a wedding in um, Kirby Lonsdale uh, the end of end of last year, and it was cool. It was cool is an understatement. It was blowing <laughs> a wind. We were in the position of thinking, do we need to put the tent up? Yeah. And we had these we had these whole lambs butterflied on the crosses over the asado style oh, grill man, that sounds amazing. and uh we, we we had to rotate them occasionally and um my friend said that when he does that in the summer the 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 top side the, the side that's away from the heat never gets cool but in this particular day yeah the top was getting cool so we had to rotate those lambs a little bit more but going back to the original question about the lid when you open when you open the lid most people don't just lift the lid have a quick look do what they need to do and get out most people lift the lid fully, so all the heat disappears. All the heat that's trapped in that and the lid, smoke as well. all the smoke, all the lid, all the heat that's trapped in that lid disappears. And then, and then they stand there and they kind of turn a load of stuff and poke around with the coals or adjust the dials or whatever. And then they put the lid down eventually. That's going to add about 10 minutes to your cooking time. So the more you lift the lid, and there's a saying in the States that the, if you're looking, you ain't cooking. So you need to keep that lid down if you're cooking on a barbecue with a lid. But I don't, I don't want to, um, to maybe give the wrong impression that one of the things which, uh, one of your kind of key messages, um, and I got this from your book as well, um, your wonderful ebook, which is available on your website. It is, uh, for free. Yeah, and it's, and it's, very, it's worth downloading, uh, is that this is basically a foolproof method, right? That, that there isn't much to worry about, is there? There really isn't. Um, I think people subscribe too much to the um, urban myths that they've heard that, you know, you can't cook chicken on a barbecue. You can't cook anything from raw on a barbecue. Um, so I'm really sometimes I'm bemused when I managed to cook an 18 pound turkey on Christmas Day from raw. And, you know, how did you do that? Um, really simply, you put the fuel to the side um, and you put your chicken in the middle, you, uh, turkey in the middle, sorry, and you put your lid down, vents open and away you go. And you just monitor the temperature. So you get a good on a charcoal barbecue. If I'm roasting for a longer period of time, I get a briquette versus a lumpwood charcoal, and I get a What's good. What's a briquette? Is so a briquette is um, is your manufactured charcoal, is your manufactured uh, charcoal fuel. Um, so if you're looking at fuel for barbecues, for charcoal barbecues, you can get the classic lumpwood charcoal, um, made in the classic sense in a kiln. Wood goes in, and you get black, irregular shaped pieces of charcoal out. Uh, so much variance, but my key principle on charcoal is always use the same one because you'll get to know how it works. If you pick up random stuff from random places like petrol stations, supermarkets, DIY stores, you will not have any consistency and you'll think that you're doing something wrong with your cooking. So with the turkey, briquettes, uh, if, I'm, if I'm cooking for a long period of time, briquettes are the way to go because they're much easier to maintain uh, the temperature for somebody who's just getting into this. And they basically have a uniform shape, uniform size, uniform weight, so therefore they have a uniform amount of energy. And... If then, as long as they're a natural product, obviously a manufactured product has an, a, a man-made influence, but so does charcoal. Um, if they're a natural product, i.e. there are no accelerants sprayed onto that product, then you can add unlit coal as you're cooking and it will not taint your food. Right, okay. And so do you think that, that kind of your choice of fuel source is one of the primary things you should think about when buying a barbecue, right? You know, based on on what kind of food you want to cook. If I'm going, right, I want to get into barbecuing, should I just go and get a, you know, a 40-pound whatever it is, which I can just chuck some coal in? Should I be going for gas? As a starter, what should I be doing? Um, I don't think the fuel choice is necessarily a... I don't think you need to worry about what you're going to cook um, when you're deciding your fuel choice. I think because you can cook anything on either. 
on any kind of fuel. So even in the market now, there's, as of the last three or four years, there's new grills from the States uh, that run on wood pellets, 100% natural wood pellets. Um, and they auto-regulate. One of the brands that I use is a, is a brand called Traeger. Um, they auto-regulate. And you can cook anything on any of them. The main consideration when you're looking at what, for me, when it comes to um, which barbecue you should get, is what's going to fit your lifestyle. Um, so many people, when I do demonstrations around the country, so many people will say, I don't know what barbecue to get. My friends have told me that they have a charcoal barbecue and they love it and I should get one as well. And charcoal is, you know, unless it's a charcoal barbecue, it's not proper barbecue. Um, personally speaking, whatever is going to help you use that barbecue more often is the best barbecue for you. So friends of mine with young families, grab a gas barbecue. When your kids say they want to eat, you don't need the hassle of lighting charcoal. I know, and anybody that's got a ch uh, charcoal barbecue with a chimney starter knows, you can have that barbecue up and running within 10 to 15 minutes. But if you're a, if you're a young family, young parents, and you've got young kids, and they want to eat now, you do not have the time because you don't have the number of arms unless you're Mr. Tickle. Uh, you don't have the number of arms required to look after the young kids and get the barbecue lit at the same time. So in that case, I would say go for a gas barbecue. And when the kids get a bit older, grab a charcoal. What things do people typically do wrong? I mean, is there anything that you can't cook on a barbecue that we cook on a barbecue that we shouldn't be? No. No, okay. So There's nothing you can't cook on a barbecue. And if you look in my if you if you look on my blog or in the ebook or look at any of the recipes that I've put out, you will notice that there is everything from um grilled steaks and burgers to hot smoked salmon, um briskets, pulled pork, um meringues, uh sticky toffee pudding, all baked, roasted, grilled, braised, casseroled, whatever, stir fried on the barbecue. So let's say that we're not going to be as adventurous as you are and start cooking meringues on a barbecue and we can't yep. even cook meringues normally. Yeah. Say I want to do a barbecue for some friends and I'm going to do some burgers, I'm going to do some sausages and I'm going to do some like some chicken. Right. Right. Yep. Like really simple staples. So what are some of the that I've mistakes? Just picked, yeah, that I've just yeah. picked up from the supermarket. How can I make those incredible? Um, it's all, it's, it, as with any cooking, it's about controlling the temperature. So I always, I always kind of... Um, translate the barbecue from the kitchen so i've already mentioned that if you're over the fuel you're grilling or you're you're cooking something like you would in a frying pan um, and if you're not over the fuel then you're in the oven so um, quite often when people cook in the kitchen they don't have the oven on full blast and they don't have the frying pan on the hotter setting so depending on what it is they're cooking they will regulate the heat of the cooking environment the frying pan might be on a medium heat, medium high, medium low, whatever. Uh, and one of the common mistakes that people make is that they get the they just they just pour a massive amount of fuel in, and they think, especially on a charcoal barbecue, if I want to cook for a longer period of time, I need more fuel. Uh, I did a I did a test about three years ago with fuels from the petrol station supermarket DIY stores um, to see how good they are, and. Um, uh, what I did was I I, I set a, I, I filled a full chimney starter so I, I had a set volume of fuel and I lit that, tested how long it took to light and then I poured that out into the barbecue, closed the lid, vents open top and bottom and uh, regulated the temperature, oh sorry, measured the temperature every 10 minutes. There's some fuels on the market that last 20 minutes. There's some fuels on the market that last five hours. What do you mean by last? Do you mean maintains that high temperature or maintains yeah, a lower temperature? Maintains any any kind of temperature. So one of the myths is that... Are you talking about consistency here? Yeah. yeah. So if you imagine temperature as a, as, a, as a graph, to get nerdy and technical for a second, if you imagine temperature as a graph, one of the myths is that, especially with charcoal barbecues, you'll, always, you'll have all heard this one, put the fuel, light the fuel, get the fuel going, 
let it let it burn out. Let it let it burn its its itself for about five ten minutes, and then once it starts to cool down, then it's ready to cook on. Well, if you think about that, that's utter rubbish because the charcoal does not know that John wants to cook a steak at two hundred and fifty degrees and wants to cook more, multiple steaks, and he's going to need about twenty minutes of cooking time to do that. Utter tripe. So, the charcoal once it's cooling down, it's going nowhere. It, the, the the temperature chart is not going to level off magically. Yeah. It, once it's coming down, it's going to the it's going to zero. So when I measured these um, when I measured these fuels, I measured the peak temperature that these fuels would reach for a given volume of fuel, and then I monitored and recorded the temperature every ten minutes. And once they drop below about one hundred and sixty degrees, I stopped recording because realistically, you're not. Once it's dipped and it's on its way down, you're not cooking anything anytime soon. 160 degrees still seems quite high to me. Like, I imagine I could cook basically any meat in an oven at 160 degrees. Yeah, you could, you could braise casserole stew at 100, 150 to 170, but if you think that that charcoal might have got as hot as 275, right. and then it's dipped, and some of these fuels drop one degree a minute. So they would literally, on a, every time I went, they'd be 10 degrees cooler. Right. So if you, get to 10, if you get to 160 degrees, and 10 minutes before you were at 170, and you were at 180, 10 minutes before that... You're going to be at 150 after, like 10 minutes later. The the amount of energy that the, you need when you're cooking, you need consistent energy. You need consistent heat. So going back to the point, most people will add way too much fuel. They'll get way too hot. It will still. You can put if you have a fuel that lasts 20 minutes, you can put two kilos in there and it will last 20 minutes, or you can put five kilos in there and it will still only last 20 minutes. If you want a fuel to last longer. You have to put, you have to drip feed that fuel into the barbecue. So should I be adding more coal as I go? Yes, with a caveat. If you buy a fuel that says that it has to be glowing red with a white coating on the outside of it before you can cook on it, walk past that fuel in the shop. That what fuel, does that mean? That fuel is either treated with um, accelerants, so products, um, petroleum products that will help it light quicker, or in some cases they're actually treated with flame retardants. Because um, when you're transporting charcoal, especially through hot climates, you don't want them to spontaneously combust. So um, if, the f- if the product on the, if the bag says that you have to have it glowing red with a white ash on the outside of it, walk past it. There is stuff on that product that you do not want near your food. It would be like cooking a steak in a frying pan and squirting lighter gel into the frying pan to get that authentic barbecue flavor. <laughs> Absolute nonsense so let's assume then that i've got my temperature more or less regulated i've got coals where i need them to be and i've got these basics you know just a packet of sausages from my local butcher um, a packet of burgers from a supermarket and some chicken thighs that's all i've got what am i doing to make sure it's as good as it possibly can be so first of all regulate your temperature if you're if you're roasting uh sorry if you're grilling you want to be able to hold your hand if you haven't got a temperature thermometer on your barbecue lid if you put your hand flat the height of a pop can above the cooking grate where there is fuel underneath. If you're grilling, you should be able to hold your hand there for between three to five seconds. Hotter than that, and you're just going to scorch the food on the outside, and it's going to be completely raw on the inside. If you're roasting, you want to be able to hold your hand there for up to eight, between eight to ten seconds. So what I would do is I would actually cook things in batches. So, so is that so how you check? You don't use... If you, if you're, most, most of my barbecues have thermometers on them because of what I do. But a lot of people who might go to the supermarket or the DIY store and buy a 40, 50 pound charcoal barbecue that you mentioned before, yeah. those, those, those value of barbecues will not have a thermometer on the lid. So that's a really simple way without investing in any equipment to know that your barbecue is going to be giving you the right temperature. What I do when I'm cooking, if I'm having a barbecue, 
steaks, sausages, burgers. I cook by food. So I would cook, and also I cook in reverse order. So sausages, steaks, and, and chicken pieces. My chicken pieces are going to take the longest to cook. And they're going to need a combination of heat. So they're going to need a combination of grilling heat over the fuel. And then they're going to need a combination, uh, and then they're going to need an element of roasting heat to make sure that they're cooked through. Do you grill them first, then roast them? Um, you can. You can do them either way. Um, there's benefits to both. But yes, if you're going to grill them, then grill them first. Get the color on the outside. The, 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 standard, cooking, uh, the standard grilling approach is to grill first. And then if it's not cooked through... And we use a t- I use a temperature probe to make sure that my food's cooked to the level that I want it to be cooked to. If it's not the in- if it doesn't have the correct core temperature, then it moves over to that roasting zone, that right hand half of the of the charcoal barbecue. And you can do the same in a gas barbecue as well. Um, but I would cook my chicken pieces first because I can grill those, and then and then once they're cooked on the outside, I can move those over to the roasting area while I then get my steaks on because I want to grill my steaks, and then I want to let them rest for as long as they've cooked for. Then I would finish with my sausages. And how are we making sausages nice? Um, sausages, get a good sausage. Um, get a good sausage from the butchers, not too much fat, although you do need a good kind of 15% fat, 10 to 15% fat in a sausage. If you look at some of the supermarket sausages, I'm very biased. I grew up working in a, in a farm shop, um, so I'm very biased towards the traditional butcher's counter, full service. Um, I understand not everybody can afford that or have access to that, but again, my approach on that is when you have a barbecue, don't have a massive pile of meat. So get better quality meat, spend the same amount that you would but just have fewer options, um, but a good quality butcher sausage and just turn it on the outside, turn it quite frequently to get the color on the outside so that you're not charring it, you're not cremating it. Uh, char for me, I always say, is the first four letters of the fuel that I'm using on a, on a solid fuel barbecue and I don't want to eat a piece of charcoal, so yeah. I'm not going to eat a charcoal sausage. Um, but color it on the outside, get it nicely cooked on the outside, use that temperature probe, use that thermopen to make sure that it's cooked inside and if it's not move it over to the indirect move it over to the roasting area of your barbecue i think it's kenji lopez but i might be wrong who said that his method for doing sausages only sausages on a barbecue is to put a pan of water or stock right to get the sausages up to some kind of temperature and then finish them by grilling them so are you talking about poaching Uh, (laughs) i guess that's what it is yeah okay what do you think about that um it's one way of doing it but the basic principle of getting smoke into food is that it has to be raw okay i didn't know that so this this concept these concepts where um chefs cooks tv presenters personalities will say to start something in the oven yeah yeah and then finish it on the barbecue to get that authentic flavor i've seen chicken thigh recipes like this as well yep and it's it's basically somebody i'm gonna i'm gonna be bold here and i'm gonna say it's basically somebody who doesn't know how to control heat on a barbecue that is suggesting this method name names no i'm not (laughs) gonna name names there's too many to name um but you know you can imagine that some tv producer some tv exec has said oh it's summertime whoever we should do you should incorporate a few barbecue recipes and i would always say stick to what you know yeah. If you don't know about barbecue, don't don't go in there and yeah. give people, just perpetuate those myths about barbecue because so many times they are. And I've seen people who know better start a chicken in the oven and then finish it on the barbecue to know that it's, to give it that barbecue flavor. If you go, when you when you cook your brisket, your pork, your ribs, your, your American classics, yes, they might be cooked on a smoker for nine, 10 hours, but the majority of the smoke is in that food, is, is in that smoker, is in that cooker within the first third of the cooking time i had no idea once the food is sealed the food cooks from the outside in 
If you want a visual for that, think about a piece of undercooked chicken. It's wet in the middle, it's cooked on the outside. Once that food is cooked on the outside and sealed on the outside, you, you have a barrier to getting the smoke into that protein. So cooking it in the oven to begin with and then putting it on the barbecue, waste of time. Um, one of the things that I do do, you asked about cooking uh, chicken pieces and, and if you grill them first and then roast them. One of the things that I do if I'm doing, particularly if I'm doing skin on chicken, is I will actually... Which is the only way really to do which it. Which is a really good way to That's do it. That's a recurring theme of this podcast, by the way. It's only, only the dark meat and it's got to have skin on. Right, so... The fat is under the skin. The skin itself is not fatty. The, the fat is under the skin. And, and again, going back to the American way of doing barbecue, when they're doing barbecue chicken, they do, they do white meat and dark meat. They will remove that skin and use the back of a knife to scrape the fat off the inside of that skin before they replace it on the chicken thigh so that when they cook it, the fat does not uh, burn and um, now you, um, you're looking at me quizzical like it you're taking like out all the flavour. Work. Oh, there's a lot of work. There's reasons why these competitions and also have. Do, do chickens have much fat? I mean, they do. Really? The, skin, the, the meat itself, not so much. But the, the, everybody knows that the fat in skin is the fat in chicken is under the skin. But there is a reason. I'm just going to plug this. But there is a reason why. Well, I suppose somebody's... that's also true for humans, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily in the muscle; it's around the organs, it's in the skin. Yeah. But um, there's reasons why these barbecue competitions have prize money for like twenty-five thousand dollars because there's a lot of work involved. There's yeah. a lot of work involved in it. But to go back to the cooking point, if I'm doing chicken thighs and I'm cooking other things at the same time, I know it kind of goes against what I just said. But if I want to be cook, if I want to just speed things up, I will actually put those chicken thighs on the barbecue on the roasting side on the indirect cooking area, skin side up, so that the fat will render down around the meat and that kind of sense. run out, so that I'll cook them about three quarters of the way through. Uh, not to go against what I've just said, I'm cooking them, I'm roasting them in the barbecue. So as that charcoal is burning, it's giving off aromas, it's giving off smoke. Even in a gas barbecue, if you're cooking food on the other side of the grill, those fats that render through will hit something hot, and with the lid down, there is not enough oxygen to create flame. If you think about your basic fire triangle, you need heat, energy, and oxygen. And when you have the lid open on a classic barbecue, you have loads of oxygen getting to where the fat hits the heat and you get flare-up. When you cook with the lid down, that fat does not have enough oxygen to create flame, so it creates smoke. So this seems to be the missing piece of the puzzle then, that the final variant that we have when, when cooking barbecue is the fat, right? Yeah. And so what are your views on, for example, you, should I be rubbing olive oil on my steaks before I put them on, on a barbecue? Uh, you know what? If, if I'm cooking a steak in a frying pan, for example, I might put the oil in the pan directly. I might yeah. put it. Yeah. What are the What are the principles? It's exactly the same. Uh, we're cooking the same food to the same point. We're just using a different piece of equipment. So in your kitchen, you may have a a frying pan. You may have an oven. You may have a slow cooker. You may have whatever you have on your bar with, with your barbecue. You have a combination of all those things. So your barbecue can be a slow cooker. Your barbecue can be an oven. It can be a, a frying pan, a skillet on a frying pan, and you can grill foods. So within that, within the parameters, within the uh, perimeter of your barbecue, you have all those different cooking appliances, and it's how you set that barbecue up and how you regulate that heat that determines what food you can cook on that barbecue. But if you're cooking, to go back to your question, if you are cooking a steak in a frying pan, even in a non-stick frying pan, I'm going to put a little bit of oil on that steak. Um, because it will give a little bit of flavor, but it will also help with protecting it and making sure that it will release. Um, if you oil... The By release, do you mean... Come away from the grill. Come away from the pan. Come away from the right, metal. Right, okay. So if you because oil a steak... it kind of caramelizes on the outside, then yeah. it lifts away. <clears throat> if, you, um, if you oil a steak or you oil a pan when you're cooking in the kitchen, 
and you don't oil a steak or you don't oil the grill of your barbecue when you're cooking on the barbecue, then you're not doing an apples to apples. You need, if you do, if you oil in the kitchen, then you oil on the barbecue. I watched your presentation yesterday and you gave a, a top tip which made uh, all the people in the audience uh, aghast. Everyone's jaw dropped when you were like, the reason that food sticks to your pan or the reason that your food sticks to your grill is only because it's not done yet. And, yeah. everyone, and I could notice people turn, turning to their partners going, that doesn't make any sense. So this is, uh, this is nothing new. This has been around, from my research, it's been around since about 1903. Uh, a French guy called Maillard um, discovered the browning reaction, or some people call it the Maillard reaction. Um, and it's essentially that the sugars, the naturally occurring sugars in protein, when heated to a given level, and generally it's, a, it's above 160 degrees, when they are heated above 160 degrees, they will caramelize. It happens on the outside of a roast. It's just slower. So if you put something in the oven at 175 to roast a piece of ch- uh, a whole chicken, a piece of beef, a piece of lamb, the outside of that meat will go brown. It will caramelize. It will form a crust. It will form those nice gnarly bits that is a very in vogue word for the last few years. If you put a steak in a pan or, you, or a steak on a grill at 250, 275, that reaction will happen much quicker. But the basic principle is that you're caramelizing the naturally occurring sugars. And for anybody that's made caramel in a pan, you know that that caramel goes through a sticky phase. It goes through softball, hardball, then it goes through soft crack and hard crack. And then once it's properly done, it will shatter. When you, when you pour it out onto a, onto a hot pl- onto a, on a greased baking sheet, it will crack and it will release. Um, so when you're forming those caramelization lines on your food, it will stick to begin with. They, the food will stick. When the food is ready to turn over, it will not stick to the cooking grill because the caramelization process has happened thoroughly and it has separated the food from the cooking grate. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a useful rule of thumb, isn't it? Right? You know, how do, how do I know when my meat's ready to turn? Well, firstly, will it even let you turn it yet? Yeah, there are a few exceptions. There's always exceptions to rules. Uh, one is skin and one is fat. So if you're cooking chicken with skin on it, um, that skin will take a lot longer to caramelize and release than the protein. And the same, if you have, if you imagine like a pork loin steak or a, or a sirloin steak where you've got that, that cap, that covering of fat around one side, that will stick maybe as long as the, um, a little bit longer than the protein. But if the protein, if the eye of the muscle is releasing, turn it over. Do you think that uh, we should be worrying about how long we're marinating stuff for? Like, no. Do you think there's a genuinely notable no. difference between a 24 You marinate marinade. things for as long as you've got time for because anything that you've made yourself is going to taste way better than most things that you buy. So if you're making it, if you're putting love and care and attention into that dish and you've got 20 minutes to make something, you make it because it's going to taste way better. And it's going to be healthier for you because most processed foods have way too much um, additives in terms of salt, sugar and the rest of it. I imagine you have these kind of convictions because you grew up on a farm shop. Yeah. What was that like? It was um, it was an experience. Um, (laughs) So I grew up in the countryside in Lancashire and... My parents worked six days a week, so on a Saturday, they wanted to know that me and my brother were safe. Um, and my sister was off doing horse riding, so she was fine at the weekend, but they wanted to know that me and my brother were safe. It was great. I got to know where food came from. Um, uh, watching a butcher um, uh, take down a lamb or a, or a, or a, a p- big um, primal cut from a beef. I'm presuming take down means carve up, not carve like up. wrestle yeah, it to submission. Yeah. I, I imagine that that <laughs> image actually went through my head as I said that. Yeah, we're not talking about like what attacking a horrible them butcher. in the field. Sorry, I'm not talking about like rugby tackling them in the field. I'm talking about um, a butcher cutting up 
Um, it's not as, anyway, it's artistry. <laughs> it is absolute poetry. When you watch a butcher, any vegetarians or vegans probably not listen to this podcast right now by, by this time in the podcast, but um, fact, there's been so a, much talk about meat. And we haven't actually talked about barbecuing anything other than meat, which I'm sure Absolutely. would be a whole other episode. So many itself. things. Um, but yeah, watching, watching a butcher um, cut down a, a lamb or, a, or a, uh, take a sirloin off a choice, um, it's just, they, they can just, it's like a wand. They just yeah. weave it through the meat and all of a sudden you've got the meat on one side and the bone on the other side and there's no meat on the bone and there's no hack marks and it's just poetry. And you get to indulge yourself with, with cooking. So if somebody came into the shop and they, they bought something that we would never have at home, I'd be really curious. I'd be really inquisitive. You know, how, what do you do with this? How do you, how do you cook this? And then, then the flip side of that was a couple of weeks later, somebody would come in and say, what do you, what do, you do with that? And I'd say, oh, well, I don't, I've never cooked this at home, but I always ask customers what they do mm. with that. And one lady said that she does it with this, and one guy said that he does it with that. So, you know, these are a few little variations for what you can do. And it's just, it's a, it's a complete melting pot of ideas, and, and it's a great place to have a dialogue with people about food. And as we know, we love talking about food, so it's a great place to hang out. And was this your kind of earliest introduction to thinking hard about food? I don't think I even realized that I was thinking hard about food. I mean, my mum was one of eight. She, she grew up on a farm. Um, she, when she left school, she went to do her city and guilds in food and catering. So I grew up from a young age with mum, earliest memories, mum cooking in the kitchen, baking, um, telling us off that we'd eaten the biscuits and the cookies and the scones and the, and the cakes way too quickly. She could never keep up. Um, I now take that as a massive compliment if somebody, if I can't keep up with somebody's appetite for my food. But, um, you know, I never really realized at the time that I thought that I was having an education. It was just something that happened and I wouldn't change it for the world. It was fantastic. It was, I met so many amazing people. They're lifelong friends. Um, and actually I, I kind of went off after I worked all the way through high school, college and university. Cause I went, I studied locally. Um, but even, even when what I moved to Canada, um, so originally I went to business school and I did an operations management degree at Lancaster, went off to live in Canada for seven years, kind of, my sister actually was cooking on barbecues before I ever did, she was roasting legs of lamb on the rotisserie, she was, I think she had people's books like Bobby Flay and the rest of them doing roast potatoes on the barbecue, and I'm like, how the heck have you done a roast potato on the barbecue, that is insane. Not in a tray or anything, just directly on the griddle? Uh, she used a barbecue tray, oh, but okay, kind right. of a, not, not a classic roast potato with lots of oil like a yeah. tray of oil but like a an oil coated new potato yeah, salad yeah. potato okay, kind of really nice. garlic. so um, so delicious um but yeah then then when i was 30 that was when i kind of took up food full-time and, and studied studied did my culinary le- uh, learning at uh right at school yeah and what kind of things were you eating at home that you think you would only have been exposed to because your mum was so into food or rather professionally into food um, she would probably cringe at the idea that she was professionally into food, but she was great. Um, we, you can imagine, or, you know, I'll, anyway, you can imagine that growing up on a farm, it was, there was not a lot of extra cash, so it was very inexpensive cuts of meat. We grew up with a lot, a lot of braises, a lot of casseroles. You mentioned earlier on before the chat about pork chops. Um, pork was an inexpensive cut. This was an off-mic chat. <clears throat> this was, was an off-mic just, chat. Just explaining that I'm Salivating recently got chops. into pork chops, which is a really lame thing to say, but I have recently got into pork chops. Um, but but at home, it was it was very inexpensive comfort food. Mum used to batch cook like crazy because she didn't believe in ready meals. Like the idea of even tin peaches was you know a little bit a little bit controversial. Um, but why why have tinned and preserved when you can have fresh? But um, 
No, she, she. It was all basic. It was it was mince. It was stew. It was braising steak. It was um, plate pies. It was all that kind of stuff. But um, it gave me an appreciation for how you can take something and that's not sexy, not exciting, not you know a natural choice for something um, that's going to be absolutely packed with flavour. But if you if you take care and you you apply um, a good bit of knowledge to it and some good classic flavours, you can literally turn a pig's ear into a into a silk purse. And when did you start cooking? Oh, I started cooking really early. Um, I started cooking, um, one of my earliest memories, it, not in that sense, but one of my earliest food memories was actually being off school for holidays. And my brother and sister are a bit older than me, so they were kind of not around when I was starting high school uh, on the holidays, they'd be working. So um, I can remember being bored at home and starting to bake, baking scones. Nobody would be home. Uh, I walked down the lane to our neighboring farm where I knew there was a shed with some eggs for sale. So I just walked down, leave the money on the shelf, uh, window ledge, take a tray of eggs home and go home and make fairy cakes and scones and sponge cakes and ginger biscuits and parking and the rest of it. But as, so as, far, as, but as far as cooking, um, I would, I would help mum, um, with dinner. So she would work till about five and not get home till about five thirty. I get home from school about four. So I'd actually put the casserole in the oven, uh, and peel the veg, get all the pans ready and start things off so that when she walked through the door, all she had to do was pull it all together, put it on the table. You were like her sous chef. Essentially. Yeah. And wh- who are you giving all these cakes to? Uh, they were just being eaten by the family. Okay. So, yeah, they, we, weren't, we weren't really handing them out. <laughs> and then t- talk me through this journey of being someone that's just generally interested in the kitchen to someone that's now specialised so uh, thoroughly in barbecue that it's now your kind of entire professional identity. Um, I was working in Calgary, Western Canada. Um, I was working in oil and gas. It was a fantastic job, um, but I just wasn't it wasn't feeding my soul and um i started thinking about what i wanted to do and i'm using a different kind of oil and gas different kind of oh there we go i hadn't thought about that one um yeah so um i was thinking about what i wanted to do wanted my own business and i knew that it was going to take a lot of time and effort and it would have to be something that i really wanted to do every day and it was it came down to food uh boiled down to food you could say um so that was that was kind of the start of it and a friend of mine just said if you want to do it, just go take a just go take a course. Just you know, if you feel like you're behind because you're now thirty and you feel like everybody else has started in the industry at a certain age, just go take a course and catch up. Which you don't have to do, but I I thought that for me that was the way that I wanted to do it. Um, so do you think you could do what you've done? Which is, I mean, yes. Alex, I've already explained at the start of the show who you are and what you're doing. Uh, but basically, you you do seminars you do workshops you do media work and you also do private barbecue catering right so you're, yeah. you're as legit as it gets there's people out there doing exactly what i'm doing with no without the same training that i do um the thing that i i'm i'm very much um <laughs> so i like to have my ducks in a row and i like to feel like i'm prepared for things so the reason why this kind of fits for me is that in my professional career i used to do trainings and seminars not too different from what I do now. Um, and in order to feel like I was qualified to, to do what I do in the food realm, I took myself off to, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but I took myself off to a culinary school in Woking in Surrey called Tom Marie. And I did my, um, I did an intense six months Cordon Bleu training 
where I basically learned the French classics and the techniques and the terms and the and all the all the skill behind it. So although I do barbecue, although I specialize in barbecue, I've got that classic training background. So yeah, I can talk about cakes. I can talk about um, all the different techniques that go along with cooking. And, and, you know and what a julienne looks like. And yeah, <laughs> you know, all your, all your different cutting techniques, which, you know, it's great when you go eat out in a restaurant, but how many people are going to do them at home? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I, that's how I came into it. And the reason why I went into teaching was because I just, I just felt like when I, because when I was in Canada, I used to have, um, I used to have one of the stipulations for my apartment when I bought it, one bedroom apartment. I want somewhere that I can put a large dining table, I said to my realtor. And uh, eight seater dining table was was kind of bought and, and set in. And I used to have dinners. I just just used to do a Sunday roast on a on a weekend and invite people over. And it just people always say, oh, I don't know how you do this. How do you make your roast potatoes so good? How do you do this? How do you do that? And it just bemused me that people didn't feel comfortable in the kitchen. So that was kind of how I thought, I want to teach people to cook. Is Sunday roast your signature dish? Yes. Let's talk about that then. I feel like I'm on Desert Island Discs right now. Yes. <laughs> but I, I'm surprised that you've chosen a non-barbecue dish. Oh, how little you know. You can do Sunday roast on a barbecue and it's the best thing ever. Right. We've got a lot to unpack then. Um, so for our non-British listeners, uh, let's just explain what a Sunday roast is. Sunday roast is your Sunday meal. Um, it's, it's generally a meat roast as the centerpiece, surrounded by all the uh, side dishes, accoutrement. So, um, you know, your, your sauces, everything like that. So for a lot of people, it, it may be a Christmas dinner or a Thanksgiving dinner or a special religious yeah. celebration lunch. And I heard that the reason that we had a massive meal on a Sunday was it was partly about using up stuff, right? And partly okay. to do with uh, church, right? Like people would go to church yeah. in the morning, so they would skip lunch and then okay. they'd have a big, like a big late lunch or maybe skip breakfast. Skip breakfast? Maybe that, maybe that makes that sense. One. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Uh, but it's it's a massive meal, isn't it? Massive. And it always has gravy. Always has gravy. Which is made with the roasting juices. of The, the juices. and So and how on earth are you getting these extra. roasting juices if you're barbecuing? Right, loads to unpack. So let's start with, what's your, what's your classic roast? What's on the plate? Um, beef. Great, great choice. Beef. Um, what cut of beef? Rib beef on Good. the bone. Okay. Yeah. And then how are you carving it? You're slicing it thinly? Uh, yeah, take the bone off. So cut down the, cut down the, cut down the back of the bone. Cut down the back of the bones. Take the take the roast off. Uh, it's exactly the same as a off the rib, off the off the bone rib. It's just got the ro- the extra flavour from roasting it with the bones, uh, which also go into your resting your your uh, your roasting juices and your resting juices. Um, but yeah, I'd probably do something like one of the one of the things that I love. And and if if anybody's followed the blogs and things with with beef, there's generally a bit of a theme to my rib uh, to my beef rubs, which is some kind of uh, woody herb like a rosemary or a thyme, some garlic, some mustard, and oil, salt, and pepper, and that goes on. It smothers on the outside, sits on for about half an hour or so, and then goes on to the barbecue right, and you, roast, you, and you, you get a beautiful seem crust. To, right, because you do seem to to like quite robust flavors with your roasting yeah. meats. Yeah, um, you know, if you get good quality meat, it has more flavor. This is one of the things that. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, I, I saw something on social media the other day and it reminded me of this person um, and they said it's, it, it shouldn't be a question about why food is so expensive. The question should actually be why is some food so cheap? Yeah, yeah. And when you get cheap food, you're, you've been cheated on flavor. So when you get good quality meat that's been, um, whether, it's, whether it's vegetables, fruit, whatever it is, not just meat, but when you get good quality produce, it has great flavor. So it can stand up to 
other robust flavors in the in the actual dish itself. So we'll come on to, uh, to exactly what you're doing to this beef, but yep. when I'm looking at a served plate, what else is on there? Uh, you've got the classics. You, I mean, my 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 signature dish is nothing fancy. It's it's more. It is the food. It's great food, but it's sharing great food with people that you love. So um, it's that together time. That's the thing. Why what I love about a Sunday roast is that it brings people together around a table, and that table doesn't have to be outside just because you've cooked it on a barbecue. Yeah. It can be inside. Um, but it's got roast potatoes. It's got oh, one of my favourite things that Mum used to do was carrot and sweet mash with loads of pepper. Oh yeah, lovely and butter. And loads of butter. So good. So okay, roast potatoes, some mash. Uh, uh, are you, you doing Yorkshire you, puddings? Yep, Yorkshire puddings on the barbecue. Yorkshire puddings on a barbecue. All right, yep. let's let's quickly deal with this then. How on earth do you do a Yorkshire pudding in the barbecue? You bake them same way that you've roasted the meat on the barbecue. You so if you think about it, you roast. Most people would think about roasting a piece of beef or any meat in the oven. Yeah, and you also bake. In the oven, yeah. So it's weird because you you roast meats, but you bake cakes, but you roast at one eighty, but you bake at one eighty, and it's the yeah. same process. What's your Yorkshire pudding batter? Oh, eggs, eggs. Oh, cranky eggs, flour, and butter. It's the same as anybody else's oh, okay. Yorkshire pudding batter. There's no difference. Again, we're going, we're cooking the same food yeah. to the same point. We're just using a different piece of equipment. Good, and uh, presumably there's some veg on this plate as well. Yep, you got loads of greens, uh, tender stem broccoli, green beans. I love sprouts. If we're getting kind of that season, I love sprouts. And if you hate farty sprouts, then just add other stuff in. Do them in the wok. Um, do them in a wok on a barbecue. Add some pancetta. Add some orange loads zest. Of garlic. Uh, you can do if you want. Um, That's the only way I eat sprouts. Is that ha- so? What's your favorite? I'm going to flip this interview around. What's your favorite the, uh, well, sprout the, uh, dish? Well, I don't. I just don't like sprouts. But if <laughs> I, if I cook them in loads of either pancetta or chorizo, so yep. something really strong and yep. flavorful, um, and absolutely cover them in butter. And what I would normally do is use a like a Hong Kong broccoli style recipe where okay. if you put a bit of soy sauce yep. and a bit of like either rice wine or, or Japanese mirin, right, um, and then something sweet right so like a little bit of brown sugar normally you take everything that's distinctive about the brussels sprout away and and they're just used as a guise it yeah they're just used then as a conduit for butter and bacon yeah yeah. so i do a a typical christmas sprout for me is uh pancetta with thyme um put in some par blanched um some blanched sprouts cut up into halves or quarters depending on the size of them then i add in some orange juice and zest then i add in some chopped cooked chestnuts and then I add in some maple syrup. And everybody loves them. And, I'm a, and I always that say it's amazing how you can pacify somebody with smothering enough flavors over the outside <laughs> exactly. of something that they hate. Exactly. And, uh, and is there anything else that I've missed on this plate now? Uh, Apart from obviously the gravy. Uh, gravy, a little bit of horseradish. Um, oh, I can't think. No, I can't think. I think that's about it. Not, yeah, well, I mean, you don't need to go mad. Certainly There's no pressure complete. because at the end of the day, if you don't get it this week, get it next week. Right, yeah, it's coming yeah, around every people week, get it? so bent out of shape when it comes to, especially something like Christmas dinner. It's like, hopefully, unless you're, you know, unless you're like getting up there in years, hopefully there's going to be another Christmas next year. So just have it next time. <laughs> and so, uh, so let's talk about this show-stopping meat that's in the centre of this roast dinner plate. Yeah. Uh, how are we preparing the beef? Um, so, yeah, so rosemary, garlic, get some lemon juice in there, get some mustard, lemon zest. And what are you doing with all this? You're putting it in a pestle and water? Uh, yeah, you can put it in pestle and mortar and just uh, put your garlic in, put the chopped rosemary in, just bash it up, grind it down to more of a paste. Is this fresh or dried rosemary? Oh, fresh. Yeah. Okay. If you if you if you don't have access, then yes, use uh, use the dried. Um, 
you won't need as much, but with the with the fresh, you just get the oils. If you are using dried, maybe just pop it into a dry uh, frying pan, dry warm frying pan, just to just to open it up a little bit. Because even though we think about spices as being dry, they still have a certain oil content to them. So you can wake them up uh, by just adding a little bit of heat. So put some heat into that uh, into that dried rosemary. But yeah, rosemary and garlic into a pestle and mortar, bash it down, chop it around with the uh, and just just make it into a puree. Then add in your lemon zest. Lemon zest has the oils again. Uh, top tip with uh, zesting any citrus is to zest it over the vessel that it's going to go into. So if you vest over the, if you zest, rather not vest, if you zest over the chopping board, the um, the oils that come out of that lemon zest are going to go into the board. They're going to go into the chopping board. And when you scrape up the lemon zest, all you're doing is scraping up the, the hard bits, the, the actual physical bit of it. Whereas if you zest over the pestle mortar, you get all those oils as well as the actual zest itself. Um... Add in a squeeze of lemon juice, not too much, because you'll make it watery, and then make an emulsion. The uh, put some put some mustard in there. If you like a little bit of texture, add some whole grain mustard. If you like it a bit more mellow, add some French Dijon. If you like a bit of poke, add some English yellow mustard. Why not blend them? Yeah. Add a bit of both. Add a bit of each, whatever floats and your And then boat. you coat the outside of it. And then coat the outside of it. Make a really good puree paste and then uh, season it with salt and pepper. Uh, I always use a sea salt. It's much more mellow. It has more flavor to it because it has more minerals in it, which brings out the flavor in whatever it is you're putting on it. Putting it on. Um, and then, yeah, smother it on the outside. Let it let the, let the it sit on the food. Let it sit on that rib beef um, on a roasting tray just on the side in the kitchen covered over in cling film for about a good 45 minutes to an hour that will allow the meat to come up to room temperature more uh, so it will cook more evenly and it will cook slightly quicker as well um, and it will also allow the time for those flavors to just permeate and then you're placing this as it is on the barbecue on the barbecue uh, in a roasting setup so rather than having going back to the uh, illustration before about the, the circle with the semicircles, mm. now i would have the circle with a little portion on the left side and a little portion on the right side, and then a massive void down the middle. And that's where you put your rib beef. Interesting. So you're, so you're changing, uh, you're changing the setup the fuel of the setup. And if I, were to, um, if I were to roast a joint of meat, and I hadn't done this kind of paste, but rather just a very basic dry seasoning, I might sear the outside before yep. I put it into yep. to braise. Yep. Can you, would you, are you kind of doing the same thing? You could do the same thing. Um, however, I find with something like the mustard, herb, garlic, uh, paste on the outside when you roast it it can it can um it can fall off so it will color up as it roasts but yes absolutely if you're doing something just like um if you're doing something really simple like salt pepper and rapeseed oil on the outside and whenever i'm roasting on a barbecue or even in the oven um yes i do roast in the oven folks um so if i'm roasting anything and i'm applying seasonings that are dry i would add a little bit of oil because it just helps to make those seasonings to stick uh, helps make them stick, and it also helps the outside to crisp up. So, yeah, if I'm doing something like rapeseed oil and salt and pepper, then yeah, you could you could give it a little bit of a sizzle on the sear to begin with, and then move it to the indirect to let it roast through. And how do you know when this beef's done? Uh, you use something like a thermopen, and you check the core temperature, and depending on how you like it, you get that core temperature to a different level. So, how do if, you like it? Uh, I like the meat. I like I like rare. I like uh, nice red meat to be to be nice and rare. So around, I would take that piece of rib beef off at around about forty-two, and I would forty-two degrees. Forty-two degrees. Any red meat is um, is a set temperature for a, for a given level. Forty-two degrees really low. That's like a bath. Just above body temperature. Yeah. Best way to serve beef. 
But if you think about cooked... And it's not blue at that temperature? No, it's not blue. Wow. Not blue. Anything less than 40 is raw. But I'm taking it off at 42. I'm not finishing cooking it at 42. So if you take food off the heat, whether it's the oven, the frying pan, the barbecue, wherever, when you take food away from the heat source, it carries on cooking. We all know this, but then we all panic when we talk about resting meat for anything longer than 30 seconds. But when it carries on cooking, it carries on raising an internal temperature. So just to get into the the kind of nitty gritty of this, what you're saying is the outside of that meat is likely to be at something like 46 degrees or higher. Oh, it's going to be higher, yeah. Okay, and then that's kind of going to... And then that heat will permeate in. So it will bring the core temperature up. So I would take it to about 42 uh, and check it with the thermometer, uh, check it with the thermopen, and then I would take that off wrap it double layer in some really good tinfoil um tinfoil keeps athletes warm after a race so keep that heat in and then put it back in put it into a tray um so that that will collect your roasting juices uh if you haven't put a tray underneath it in the barbecue um and then use tea towels tea towels are mini duvets put some tea towels over the top of that meat if you can feel the heat coming through the tea towels put another tea towel over the top and just pop that thermopen in the side, underneath, through the foil, into the core of that piece of rib beef, and watch it come up. And if it gets, once it gets to, it will come up from 42 to probably, depending on the size of it, probably another 10 degrees. Serious? Yeah. So it's, it's, its internal temperature can increase by up to 25% yeah. just by wrapping it in yeah. tinfoil. You think about when you catch yourself on the oven or on a frying pan or on the barbecue, and you've run your finger under that cold tap for 10 minutes like we were taught at school. Mm. You take your finger out of that cold water... And it still burns. Yeah. It's still hot. And that's a second or two glance on a frying pan, a grill, wherever. That rib beef has probably been in the barbecue, depending on the size of it, for a good hour and a bit. Yeah, yeah no so matter how long you run that rib, that rib under the no. water. Is <laughs> She's not cooling down anytime soon. How fascinating. Okay, and so well, after it's rested, you've obviously got all these juices, which I presume you're making yep. the gravy with. Yep. How, how do you make that? Um, I probably have had some vegetables underneath the uh, or in a tray with the with the beef on the barbecue. So your classic mirepoix, uh, onion, celery, carrot, roast those down with a little bit of beef stock, um, and then when they and a little bit of rosemary in there as well, if and garlic if you like. Um, put those onto a into put them put the tray onto the hob. Uh, bring it up to a simmer. Get a potato masher. Mash all those vegetables down so that they form a puree. Add in some red wine, let that reduce down. Add in some more stock, let that reduce down, and then pass it all through a sieve so that it's uh, nice and smooth. How does this recipe differ? season. How, how, does, how does this, this recipe differ to your mother's? Uh, quite a bit. There's no red wine in mum's uh, gravy, <laughs> <laughs> okay. and there's no herbs or garlic either. <laughs> but the basic principle is exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, and there's also no bisto powder in mine. Right. Uh, well, goodness me. Oh, and there's a the little. The claws bit, are out. The claws are out. But I also forgot to mention that when you've ma- uh, mashed all those vegetables, um, just sprinkle over some flour because that is yeah. your thickening agent. Sure. You know, when you when you've got a family of when you've got a family of five and you, you're working six days a week and you got to put food on the table, you need shortcuts, and everybody needs shortcuts. That was Richard. I really enjoyed that chat. If you're interested in finding out more about him uh, or if you want to get a free copy of his ebook, do go to his website, richardholdenbarbecue.co.uk. That's Richard Holden, H-O-L-D-E-N, then bbq.co.uk. 
And I have noticed that the episodes of late have been quite meat heavy. Uh, I'm conscious to address that balance. Uh, so in future episodes, I, I'm going to include some vegan and some vegetarian dishes. I promise. There, I've put it on the record. Uh, thanks once again for downloading this episode. To make sure that you don't miss any future episodes, please do subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. And also, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so on my Instagram. That's ollihornpicks, O-L-L-I-E. H-O-R-N-P-I-C-S. And if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can do so at podcast at pona.app. That's podcast at pona, P-O-N-A dot app. I'll see you this time next week. Finally chopped four carrots. 